The theme for the afternoon talk is uh, emptiness, oneness, and non-duality. Sometimes we have the real and rather precious opportunity to step back from our everyday life. It's really important that we make time for that. And when we talk of stepping back from our everyday life, what we're actually referring to is some of those primary roles which you and I have are put aside. If you think of some of the challenges, the stresses, the tensions, the pleasures and pains that affect you, that affect us, generally speaking, it's often around certain kind of roles that we have. We may have the role as a mother and father, and therefore a child, a son or a daughter. We may have the role as a son or daughter in relationship to a mother or father. We have the role as a partner, as a lover, as a husband or as the wife. The roles of work and the roles of study which involve others. The uh, roles uh, of our day-to-day -day life, of friends and responsibilities. And these roles, these identities, which you and I are very familiar with, sometimes we need just to have some space, not to reject them, just to put them down and see what's happening for us, what's going along with the roles. And this finding of some space in our life is an important task, it's an important uh, responsibility. What that does, and something very valuable about it, and I hope each one of us is taking some time for this, is to give some opportunity for some reflection. And the Buddha uses uh, in the, what he calls the uh, factors or the limbs of awakening. So the body has the limbs. What is it? Two, one head, two arms, the trunk of the body, the hands, the legs, the feet, the limbs of the body. And then he refers to limbs of awakening. And the first one is mindfulness or awareness. Being a really conscious person. It's a real contribution, a real step to waking up. And the second is Dharma Vichara. Dharma, teachings, practices, explorations of these things. And Vichara means reflection or inquiry. And it has shall we say, uh, two-directional here. One is, yesterday evening, it was a time, and the same this evening again, at uh, ten past eight, had an inquiry time. I just squeezed in an advertisement there, please note. And that, uh, so we had an inquiry time for an hour, actually an hour and a half yesterday evening, uh, there, and there was a dialogue and exchange taking place it was Dharma Vichara, inquiry into the Dharma of uh, life, keeping away from theory and abstractions, philosophizing and Buddhology, and focusing on what the experience is, what, as the Buddha said, what is the honey we can squeeze out of the event? What's the honey we can squeeze from the situation? What are the insights that can emerge from it? Dharma-vichara is question and answers. So sometimes you meet with a teacher and you have some questions. And that questions is because there's the sense that that contribution, there are some senior practitioners around here and there are people, a lot of clarity and wisdom in many areas of life. And you ask her or him and that's an inquiry which is not theoretical, which you sense can contribute to your experience. The groups are Dharma Vichara. But there's also, not more important and not less important, is the Dharma Vichara which the human being can engage with herself or himself from within. And therefore those questions that you might ask, this poor devil up here, or uh, others, actually you and I can ask from within. And 
The aspect of the inner Dharma Vichara, the inner reflection, can and must and needs to include the past. It includes the past. In the Dharma Vichara, which um, includes the past, we may turn our attention to the past. The one thing we must remember from a Dharma perspective one has to be very, very careful here of falling into the trap of simple cause and effect. There's usually for us a lot of blind spots. So we say, um, when I was a child, popular, my mother didn't give me enough love. This is one of the most popular mantras of the West. And therefore, because she didn't give me enough love, poor mother gets blamed for so much, because she didn't give me enough love, I am not really able to love. This is called simple cause and effect. The Buddha touched on this two and a half thousand years before Mr. Freud, and I think had a rather healthier approach. Apologies to the analysts in the room. And the Buddha said, supposing it's true, because it's a measurement, my mother and my father really didn't love me enough, and it's had an impact on me. If I hold to that view, I feel, uh, uh, and hold to the view, there will tend to be a rejection of the mother and father. My mother and father didn't love me. And that will have its impact upon us in the present. The Buddha's response, when asked and touched upon this, rather than our drawing the conclusion, said, my mother and father didn't love me enough. He gave the examples of not being loved, absence, not being present, being mean, tight, not generous, not giving, and being angry and negative. These are common forms. Not being present, being mean, tight, ungenerous, with love, with time, with energy and presence, and also <coughs> being negative in various ways. And the wise thought which comes out of that reflection, the Buddha says, is, okay, that's the fact with my mother and father. May I engage in the practice which brings out of me kindness and love and warmth. I recognize it's not there from the history. I'm clear about that. I've reflected on that. Now it's my opportunity. Now I practice. And that sees the fact without the blame and it helps to take, take the responsibility from us and we can explore uh, with that. The other aspect of the reflection from um, past to, uh, 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 to, to present. The Buddha has spoken of Patisamfedi, two kinds of experiences. Uh, I'll get round to the theme of oneness and emptiness and non-duality, but don't go away. It's, it's not totally removed. <clears throat> and, and this is where reflection comes in. The two kinds of experiences which human beings know about, in one formulation, is what's called worldly and spiritual. <laughs> Allah is merciful. <clears throat> and the reflection on the worldly experiences, it is not a teaching of trying to minimize or get rid of the worldly experiences and only have a completely spiritual life. Not, not the, Buddha, the Dharma of the Buddha. It may be in other traditions, but it's not in Dharma tradition. So the worldly experiences that you and I have, you know, from uh, the brushing on the t teeth, 
and the, the squatting on those toilets uh, over there, which are now going to be so clean through your kind generosity to clean them, we'll be in awe of them. Uh, there, and there are lots of worldly things, ordinary everyday things that go on with our life. Some of the dramatic ones, some of those experiences in ordinary worldly life which has touched upon you, sometimes pleasurably, the strong, intense, pleasurable sensations that you may have. You really wanted to get something. Job. What else? A load of money. Success. Um, name and fame. Uh, possessions. All those uh, gadgets that we are being told we can't live without a day longer. And one gets access to, to all, all, all of that. Your, your father gives you a million dollar uh, check for your 21st birthday. So, so all those uh, sensations that might come. Uh, there, you, 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 you can have as many lovers as, as, as you like because they're falling at your feet. Whatever. <coughs> and, and sometimes one looks at all of that one reflects on all of that and asks, when well, all those pleasurable sensations that manifested for uh, yourself, was it really so valuable? Is my life, this is a reflection, is my life devoted to the maximization of pleasure? Because this is the story of what a successful life is all about. The maximization of pleasure. Name and fame, comfort, things working very well, getting what I want, being a successful person. This is the message. While Lord Yama, the king of death, wanders around all the time, picking up various people and as you get older in the years, it would be a rare month that somebody hasn't told me of somebody that I know who has died. It would be a rare month that goes by that somebody saying, so-and-so died, so-and-so died. Do you remember so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, so-and-so died. So Lord Yama, as the Buddhists say, is the Lord of Death, personification, wanders around this earth taking people every day. Sometimes, all for reflection, all for reflection. We want a transformed life. We don't want to be living in the pursuit of pleasure as the reason for our existence. Sometimes we look back on the painful events of life. And sometimes, some people have had very, very uh, painful circumstances. But the speaking of that refers to being separated from who and what one loves, not getting what one wants, losing what one has. Person, situation, place, income, work. We can look back in our reflection on the past and the painful circumstance and just feel unhappy, sad, a bit depressed by what happened. Or we can find a way to reflect. What is it that I can discover and what is the insight I can get from such experiences? We let go of being in the present moment. I spoke about that, I think, yesterday or so. We turn our attention to the past. In this painful period of my life, and all that went helplessly and hopelessly wrong, that might be the immediate view, what is another way to look at it? But one has to be careful here, because there is a current tendency to put a positive gloss, understand the word gloss? A positive appearance over events. To cover it up, 
oh, that was a really wonderful period in my life. No, it wasn't, it was shit. <laughs> I really learned so much about myself. No, you didn't, you're still miserable. Whatever. So sometimes I had to put this positive appearance over, 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 over things uh, uh, there. Some friends, as an example, went to Copenhagen, uh, connected friend Rob and other friends from Guy House and others, for the summit because these 192 nations met together because they were going to come to an agreement about climate change there. And because of the utter ineffective governments that we have uh, there, came away with some pathetic, indecisive agreement that between now, I think, and 2050, which some of us will be long dead, that we're going to try and reduce carbon emissions and the destruction of our planet by 50%, but we won't have any proper agreement about it beforehand. I mean, what? This is the governments that, that we have. Useless they are. Useless. And one well-known Buddhist teacher, whose name I'm tempted to say, but I, uh, I'm going to show immense restraint, <laughs> actually said, this agreement, which is no agreement, because no thumbprint by our Prime Ministers and our Presidents was put on paper about it. They came in, made a, a few uh, speeches with the usual empty rhetoric and left. One Buddhist teacher said, the outcome of this is a gift. Gift? It's a nightmare. My idea of a gift is something which somebody gives to me which I'm very happy to receive. That's my idea of a gift. It's not my idea of a gift of being told, I'm sorry, we're going to let this planet go to the pits. I don't regard that as a gift. And so it's this tendency, we have to watch it. People do it with India. Oh, how is India? Despite getting hepatitis and malaria and the shits morning, noon and night and cough and cold and bronchitis and laryngitis and having your passport stolen, your money stolen, your clothes stolen and all that. You say, I had a wonderful time. <laughs> Complete colouring and distortion of the past. This wish to put the, pos the positive over the negative. The wish to put the positive to deny the negative. Please watch ourselves. What's the middle way? What's being true? What's authentic? And that, equally I say, applies to the past and our relationship to the past. Want to see clearly. Not to feel unhappy or depressed, but at least see it clearly, because if we see clearly, if we're honest, the honesty will bring us close to truth. But if we've got this ideology, which the New Age Wallers and other people have, of putting the positive spin over events, we're out of touch with reality. We just want to feel better about what happened. But that will stop us from seeing clearly so reflection's quite a task, quite a responsibility. <laughs> it's called Nadama music while you work. <laughs> when we look through something, and perhaps tomorrow morning in the, in the group we can touch on this a bit more, when we look through, through something, and how we've built up pictures about something, and suddenly we see there's something false or deceptive about it. We see through it, Dharma language, we see the emptiness of it. We see the emptiness of the clinging to it. We see the emptiness of the holding on uh, uh, onto it. And it's particularly important in this area where we um, generate the stories. How in life we make the stories. 
And it's not unusual, as we know, we sit on the beloved meditation cushion, we're keeping it very nicely warm there, and the inner life grabs hold of an event, whatever, past, present or future. And our imagination goes on a little riot, and the imagination builds the story. It requires some feeling. So sometimes the story we build is the, is the pleasant one. And we make a lovely pleasant story, beautiful. And sometimes the story is made, which is made, is the unpleasant one because it's built up on the unpleasant feeling. And sometimes the story is built up because we are saying to ourselves, I don't know how I feel about it. Because I don't know how I feel about it, I'll think about it. So not knowing how we feel, the story, the image, the picture starts and we build and we build and we build. And then something will come along, end of the sitting, ring the bell or something else, and the story dissolves. And then we look back, I say it myself, I'm sure you do, you look back and think, what was all that about? What was it going on in me that I made such a story? And sometimes, for the reflection, I can't always catch it, but sometimes in the reflection, I look back and I try to see what was the moment my consciousness left the immediacy of events, what was the moment it left that and it grabbed something? Was it the feeling? Was it a thought? Was it an idea? Was it a memory? Was it an opinion? Was it um, something that somebody said to me? What was the moment that ended up in some story, pleasurable or painful or not knowing, what was the moment that that was the trigger? Mindfulness is to cat, capture, sorry, or yeah, or see the moment of departure from the immediacy of events. If we have a good practice in mindfulness, we will catch that moment when we, which triggered the event of, sorry, moved us from the event and triggered the fantasy, triggered the imagination, triggered the ideas. And we just want to catch that. If, sometimes, and uh, Jess will speak about this, I hope lots of people go to, uh, tomorrow morning, Jess, the group? Yes, uh, to Jess's group uh, uh, tomorrow. It's important to understand here how sometimes something in life touches us, that inspiration aspect that Jess uh, referred to, and it moves something. <laughs> it moves something there. We might call it some uh, uh, inspiration. And what I notice in myself, quite often, one is quite. There's quite some test starts off very, very quickly. There, and I, I, two, two um, examples come come to mind. Um, uh, when I was on the road, actually it's just about, it's, is that, um, I've been on, uh, left uh, England in 67, got to India, 1970, I was hitchhiking up through uh, uh, Thailand, visited this teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, in uh, the monastery in Watsuanmok, means the Garden of Liberation. After spending, asking, asking having some inquiry with him, and after two or three weeks, I said to, uh, I went to see Ajahn Buddhadasa, we go and talk with him, that I really wanted to take ordination as a, a Buddhist monk. And I felt inspired, I felt determined, the motivation was there, etc. And his response was, anybody who changes their religion, oh, these words stick in my mind over the years, Anybody who changes their religion does so because they haven't understood their own. So, you know, typical Buddhist, totally un, uninterested 
in converting anybody to anything is, is there. And, um, and then he got the novice and in his small mounting, mountain of books, he got a book out called the Bible. And then he looked up the first chapter of Genesis and then in the first few pages of Genesis it says, um, I can't remember who says to who, probably it was God or somebody, I don't know who was around recording everything, but anyway, it said, God said, um, thou shalt not bite of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I think that's more or less, thou, sh thou shalt not bite of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil good and evil being the duality. So he said, that's all you need to understand, and if you understand that, he said to me, then you've understand, understood every religion. That's it. There's nothing else. Cool. Well, thank you. And then he sent me away. So I hitched out, went up into Laos, crossed the Mekong, went over into Laos, there was this mad war going on up there, secret bombings from uh, the American uh, army, etc. And still determined, and then came back and returned back to uh, the monastery, to the abbot, and said, look, I really, really want to ordain. And so I say, sometimes something moves inside of us. There's a difficulty in the beginning. There, the, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem to be the cooperation and the outcome and just keep steady with it and something happens and then the Ajahn saw that I had some seriousness about it and it made the arrangements. And the other example that comes to mind is in, um, in Dharamsala, I, this is in, in the mid-1970s, I gave my first Dharma retreat. Vipassana retreat. I don't use the word Vipassana very much. I, like, Dharma gives me a bigger sense. And the insight meditation is a, a feature of uh, the Dharma, not the essence of it. And the, in the retreat, about 30 people in McLeod um, Gunge, at Elysium House, some of you may know. And one of the people on the retreat had, I suppose, you could call it mildly mental health problems and he had a history in English we call of GBH uh, he'd caused somebody some grievous bodily harm in Britain had been had been in prison so during the retreat this as it happens with people this pressure came up and he started getting very angry and sometimes people get angry on retreats don't know why, but anyway, I get angry on retreats. He got furiously angry. I mean, really, really angry. Whoa, whoa, there. And this is true. He got so angry with some guy who hadn't done anything. Mild, quiet meditator. Mind your own business meditator. Do your practice meditator. You know, completely transparent, inconspicuous. He was... This, looking for an axe to hit him with. And I thought to myself, it wasn't like this in the monastery. <laughs> there was lots of meta around. There might be a little bit of irritation through the eyes sometimes, but nobody walking around. And I thought, what the hell am I doing this for? The monastery is nice, it's chilled out, you know, these Westerners, they're all off the trolley, uh, etc. And so, some doubt comes, do I want to do this? There might be, a, who knows what the next retreat is going to be like, etc. And sometimes in life, when we start something, we have a commitment to uh, something, sometimes it's almost like, uh, I'm not trying to put a positive gloss on this, <laughs> but it's also sometimes like, the metal, as the Buddha said, gets tested in the fire. And sometimes the, the, the test for us gets, is very quick. 
and, and it takes some quiet conviction and dedication uh, there. And sometimes with some steps that we make in life, it may be that in the willingness to make those steps, maybe nobody else around agrees. One's heart says, this is appropriate. One's heart says, this is the right step to do. One's heart says, this is the risk. And one knows there's, there's absolutely no intention to cause any uh, uh, harm or anything. So as Mahatma Gandhi used to say in this country regularly, inspired by one of uh, India's greatest poets, Rudbindranath Tagore, who got the, the, the prize, the Nobel Prize in 1930. In one of the poems of Tagore, he said, if you're misunderstood, he says, walk alone, walk alone, walk alone. And Mahatma, in all the conflict and the hatred, and of course the assassination, of course, end of his life, and sometimes there are some people in life who just quietly walk alone and just keep steady uh, with it. And that's all part of the uh, uh, challenge. And I say all of this is part of the exploration. All of this belongs to a life of inquiry. It must include in it steps into the unknown, the taking of the risks. Similarly with the spiritual or mystical uh, experiences. And small events actually can be both. To take a very small example, and then I'll get round to the one this, don't go away. Take, um, take a small example. In the Zen tradition, you have the tea ceremony. I've only ever actually been to one in my entire life in a Zen monastery. And it's a very, very mindful, caring ritual. And when some event is engaged in mindfully and very slowly and carefully and respectfully, so it's some kind of spiritual feelings and sensitivities emerge. Just very careful, the boiling of the water, putting the tea leaves into the pot, hot water into the pot, the small Zen Japanese cups that are used, picking it up, very, pouring it out, the gracious uh, respect to each person drinking the tea. It's a very beautiful and spiritual uh, uh, feeling. You probably had lots of them in the chai shops. And, uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, at, at home or wherever, one just, like me anyway, not being not so spiritual, just put on the kettle, whatever. If it's chai, boil up a bit of milk, throw in some ginger and a bit of cardamom, and what's the other things we put in? Huh? Cloves, cinnamon, you know. Black huh? Black pepper, sugar, you know, the full catastrophe. Let's you know, put the whole lot in there and make it up and have a lovely cup of chai with one's friends. So sometimes in the same event, as I say, sometimes, it can feel really spiritual sense. Two people eating a meal alone and mindfully in silence. Something rather deep in the silence of just eating alone, eating together. Very, there can be a very spiritual feeling about it. And sometimes just eating, just, just worldly, just having a meal, just having a cup of tea. Everything can go backwards and forwards. There's a certain duality in the events. Is your life nourished enough with the spiritual? Is your life nourished enough with the worldly? Is there an exploration of the two? Does one need some more attention? There is a danger for some people who get rather unworldly. And when we get unworldly, whoa, be careful. Sometimes that can show itself in being too trusting. Sometimes too idealistic. Too positive. We get rather unworldly. The world is a very tough place to live in. It's a world of birth, ageing, pain and death. It's a world where there's a lot of suffering and anguish in it. It's a world where there's a lot of conflict and confusion and anguish in it a lot of selfishness and greed, it's in this world. 
we need to wake up to it. We don't want to imagine this world is a nice place to be. But this same world that we live in has much which is beautiful and deep and precious and spiritual and loving and extraordinary. We don't want to reject that because if we do we'll become negative, cynical, etc. So we've got to be quite kind of authentic and genuine and real about this world which is so mixed. One of the aspects of that um, is a common ideology which is um, another one of those that contributes to the grey hairs, actually now white hairs. And a common one these days is the ideology of oneness. Oneness. Which I find a little hard to get my poor heart and mind and brain cells around. But it's become extraordinarily popular. Oneness. So, the view, back to the views of course with this world that we live in, sometimes we say, the world is so diverse. There are men and there are women and there's young and there's old and there's good and there's bad and there's right and there's wrong and there's here and there's there and there's the material and the immaterial, there's the forms and the formless, there there's comings and goings. All of this diversity, each day. And then we say, but the reality is, it's all one. So the ordinary, the mundane, the um, ordinary view is a world full of multiple differences. And we might say, oh, we could say, oh, I am unique. I don't feel very unique, but some people say. And you might say, oh, she is unique, and he is unique, and everybody is unique, and everything is uh, unique. So the world is full of the differences, and, uh, and all the conflict and difficulties that arise. We've, sometimes we find it hard to live with it. So up has come this view, strongly used amongst the Buddhists, hopeless they are, which says everything is one, it's all one. Everything, it even gets worse sometimes, everything is perfect. What? What? Am I living in the same world? Which world is perfect? <coughs> and I think it has that slight smell of covering over. It, has, it, it, it gives a feeling of that the world is really a nice place to live in because it's all one. And the experience of oneness is really precious. It's a beautiful experience, oneness. I don't disagree for a moment. But to give it any ultimate Significance is a, for me is a step way over the top. And the strongest reminder, uh, um, forgive me the US citizens in here, <laughs> I love you honestly. The strongest reminder I had of this was on 9-11, which of course 9-11 incidentally is going on every day in Iraq and Afghanistan and will continue as long as that uh, the American occupation continues. But on 9-11 I was flying over US airspace and the message came that planes were not being allowed to land and we were all returned back to, in this case, to Europe. Uh, 55 aeroplanes a day leave from uh, Heathrow Airport to fly into a US city and the pilot wasn't allowed to say what had happened so we came back and then of course I watched the news and like millions of others whew, wow the terrible tragedy the obscenity of what took place in New York City 
uh, there. Only a few weeks before, this is the point I want to make, only a few weeks before, there was a poll in the United States which said that, I can't remember the number, but something like 86 or 88 percent of American citizens reported that they had had some deep spiritual or religious experience either being touched by God, as one expression of it, or a profound sense of oneness. Eighty-something percent of American, U.S. American citizens reported either the experience of God, some way, or an experience of oneness, some spiritual religious experience. Yeah. For me, small thing, if it was a profound experience of oneness, and it, and it certainly can be, it would have to be a oneness with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Particularly as there was not one single Afghani citizen actually involved in 9-11. <laughs> but that wasn't the point. The point is there had to be somebody to blame. There had to be somebody to attack. And this poor, impoverished country called Afghanistan had to bear the responsibility of the might of the government and military America. War crimes, I call that. And what happened? In the figures, at the heat of the time, According to the figures, 95% of US citizens endorsed the invasion of Afghanistan. What happened to the oneness? Couldn't have been that deep. The nation state mattered more than the experience of oneness, that experience of God and God loves us. So when we speak about deep experiences, and oneness is a genuinely deep experience, an authentically beautiful experience, sometimes we've experienced it in the nature, we've experienced it in the act of making love, we've experienced it on our meditation cushion, feeling wonderful harmony with the nature. It is a precious and beautiful experience, and there are many depths and levels to it. But if it is genuinely deep, it will affect all political, social and economic thinking. If it's shallow, it won't touch it. it. We won't think differently at all. We just have a claim. I had a very profound, deep experience uh, uh, of oneness, oneness, and I support my government to send in the drones to the Swat Valley in Pakistan and kill men, women and children because of Western ideology. It just shows the lack of depth of the oneness. It's a profound thing to experience, and yet having said that, I still say, it's not the ultimate truth. It's not the ultimate reality. It's not ultimate how things are. Though, the experience of it is very precious for human beings. And somehow we've got to look more carefully at these experiences. And the Buddha in many things, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Buddha, you know, forgive me. And I just, what I love about the, the teachings, and it's taken some years because I'm a rather slow learner on these, uh, uh, on these things, and I hope uh, before I uh, uh, go to the cremation or whatever, that I'll have a little bit more understanding about these things. But one of the things which I love about the Buddha's uh, teachings, he speaks of knowing. This is the important, really important thing. Beautiful. And sometimes you and I will say, oh, I reflect on the past, or maybe the present. In the retreat in Budgaya, there were one or two groups we had. I tell you, listening to what people were saying in the group was just music 
the best of music to my dear old meditation teacher's ears. The, some of the depth of the sharing, the realizations about the emptiness of ego, of uh, consciousness and seeing things in a fresh way, and changes going on in people's lives. Really lovely, lovely to hear. And the Buddha's emphasis, and it's a very deep emphasis, is essentially he says that it's not the experience itself it's not the experience. So we may have a really wonderful and important experience. An experience is formed in time. No, you nor I, we can't have a continual experience of oneness. It's not possible. Not simply impossible, I say. It arises for us in time. And the Buddha's emphasis was not on you and I having just deep experiences, that is not the criteria for waking up or for change or for transformation. It's what has emerged out of that experience which, of which the, of what we know that comes out of it which has a profound important impact on our life in a really remarkable way. That's the key. Some people say, oh, I went to this wonderful guru, I went to this great master, I did this wonderful retreat, I had the most amazing experiences, whatever it might be, over the days, or weeks, or, or months. And one of the people here is telling me there is a whole group of women on a holy island who's going into retreat for three years, is it? Uh, Four years. So they're going into retreat for four years, and it's lovely to uh, hear of these things on this uh, windswept little island. How long does it take to walk around? Three and a half hours. hours. Marvellous. On a good day. On a good day. Thank you. And so some people go to give support. Good night now. Then he goes to give support, and uh, one of the workers on the island, etc. And the experience, important and precious and beautiful, but the significant is not the experience, but the insight, the realization, the discovery which comes from it. That's the important thing. But sometimes we keep reporting the experience. I had this incredible experience with so-and-so, or with this retreat, or with this practice, or with this method. And we go to the experience. It is important that we report the experience. But the most important thing is what's come out of it. What's the insight that's changed my life? What is the real difference it's making? That's the the important thing. How does it show itself? Otherwise we just got a memory of a lovely experience. And that um, emphasis and priority some people have to say, this is again the lovely thing of the, the Buddha's Dharma it's so free in the exploration while valuing teachings of oneness and valuing teachings of non-duality or of uh, emptiness or whatever, the exploration is so free that we don't actually have to have an experience. And the classic example of what I mean is, it happened, sometimes we, let's take an example, we listen to, listen to a talk. Yeah. And the person who is giving the talk, she or he, offers the Dharma there. And there may not be any experience around, whatever, nor any recollection of some important event. But one just sees it clearly. So the teacher may say, um, what would be a popular Buddhist favorite for a moment? Impermanence. That, but the teacher may say, explore impermanence. Your problems of your life, your ups, ups and downs, is because of not 
having a clear relationship with impermanence. You've got to learn to live with the insecurity of life. Life is insecure, it keeps on changing, nothing's worth holding on to. You and I have probably heard it a thousand times. I've said it a thousand times. And the teacher may say, go and practice observing impermanence. Sometimes the person is listening, she or he has never done any practice of impermanence. Never even, hardly ever used the word before. Listens, no experience of practicing observing impermanence. Whoa! Wow, it's clear. Impermanence means nothing's worth clinging to. person just hears that. No experience of practicing it, hears it, it's clear. Wow! And something is freed up in the being. No experience, no practice, nothing intellectual, it's not heady, it touches the place, it's beautifully clear, and no practice. I mean, what could be better? Eh? Practices for those of us who weren't listening. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> so sometimes it, we listen and we may have a little feeling right there, but sometimes we go to practice. And sometimes from practice to the listening, uh, which is there. Or the intention to see and know clearly and, and well for ourselves. Similarly and finally, Jingo. Hello. Uh, what time did I kick off? Anybody know? Almost an hour ago. Eh? Almost, an hour. Almost an hour ago. Oh, well, just please be grateful I'm not Thai. <laughs> well, Thai teachers, they're timeless. <laughs> I know from bitter experience as a monk, teacher would come in in the evening, sit on the throne, start talking, you weren't allowed to, you couldn't sit like that with one knee near your chin, oh, like that. Or have your either foot facing towards the front. This was considered very, very rude because the teacher didn't want to see your dirty, muddy feet, etc. No cushions, you know, it's not Zen with their lovely comfort zones. This is hardcore Theravada. Bamboo mat on the floor, nothing else, really. the monk will know. No. Have you got a cushion under you? <laughs> I love you. And, uh, and then if you've been a monk for a few year, five years in the monastery, then you were given a little flat piece of carpet to sit on. This was the corruption of comfort. And you never knew when the Ajahn would finish. So, yeah, Christopher rambling on for nearly an hour, Zohar tells me. But he would go on and on and on. You know, monks sitting there. <laughs> but as long as you know, someone was interested, but the record, I think, was four hours, 45 minutes. So to about quarter to one in the morning. And I didn't speak Thai. <laughs> One learns about sensations in the body, I have to say. <laughs> Plus a shaved head, no mosquito coil, and if you dare put your robe over the top of your head to keep the mosquitoes out, I mean, you're just a weakling, you're just a wimp. God, where's the man? This is how it was in a monastic life. 365 days a year, every evening. Sorry for the rambling on. This is, ex this is purely an excuse for another 10 minutes or 5 minutes. And I finish, I promise you. <laughs> right. So sometimes, <clears throat> in the exploration of these, we want to take the experiences, uh, the reflection, there's the uh, listening as a reflection and as a meditation uh, there, and through that whole uh, uh, process. Similarly, uh, and to look at the ideologies of our time, 
Ideology is believing something is ultimate when it's not. Believing something is absolute when it's not. This is ideology. And that applies to words like emptiness, it applies to words like non-duality, it applies to words like oneness. Please be mindful and conscious with these words. Because if you and I grasp these words, you know, people like myself will use the word emptiness you know, regularly, if I grasp these words, it, the ego will feed on it. It will hold to it. And Nagarjuna, who's the uh, high priest of emptiness, he's the, the, the master of the teachings of emptiness inspired by the Buddha, he said, if you grasp, it's a beautiful analogy, he said, if you grasp onto emptiness, like, or grasp onto oneness, or grasp onto non-duality, if you grasp onto emptiness, it's the equivalent of swallowing medicine which doesn't melt and dissolve in your stomach. It will make you sick. If you grasp onto emptiness, or in this case, oneness, or non-duality, or those being in the now, those themes that we are touched upon, it's the same as taking medicine which doesn't dissolve. Therefore, the Dharma teachings of liberation are a teaching of liberation which acknowledges the value of exploration of emptiness, acknowledges the beauty and the preciousness of genuinely deep experiences of oneness, it acknowledges the great importance of non-duality, which finally in contemporary I, possibly others as well, of course, have somewhat redefined the meaning. I'll just touch very quickly. Shankara, the great sage of Advaita, of non-duality, said that non-duality essentially means there is Brahman, the immeasurable, and there is the human being, and the nature of the human being is Atman, and Brahman, the immeasurable, and Atman, the being, is one. Like the wave is water, the ocean is water, the wave lives in the ocean, and they share the same nature, they are one. This is the teaching of Shankara. Really important and valuable teaching. But the contemporary exploration of non-duality is looking at the polar, the Buddha didn't use the word non-duality, but it's looking, as it were, at that which supp keeps supporting, keeps mirroring. Concentration, lack of concentration. Meditation, absence of meditation. Greed and non-greed. Negativity and non-negativity. Fear and fearlessness. Calm and restlessness. Good and bad up and down, right and wrong, here and there. So whenever we take up something, we begin to see there's something other. Shallow and deep, spiritual and worldly. So there's a whole range of what we might call dualities. It's not the way that Shankara spoke about it, because he kept to the ocean and the wave analogy. And it is important for us to be able to look and see, am I caught up on a duality? So the Dharma teachings are not even about being a good person, because a good person is always in struggling to live in a way of not being a bad person. So the exploration of life is to liberate our life, and part of our practice for exploring that is just to look at our dualities and just see they're mutually dependent on each other. That's all. That doesn't mean to say that one is a non-dual teacher. Ramana Mahashi, who's been labelled, he would not be very happy with this, but he has been labelled a non-dual teacher, an Advaita teacher. He explicitly rejected it. But he can't get it, he's dead, so he can't say anything now. <laughs> there. 
So the teaching is not to be a non-dual Advaita teacher. It's not to be an emptiness teacher. It's not to be a oneness teacher. It's not to be the now teacher. But to be free. That's all. <laughs> Don't be anything. Mm. <coughs> all right, enough. Thank you for lending the ear. <laughs> Let's just have a quiet minute together, please. May all beings live with reflection and inquiry. May all beings explore the profound range of experiences, both worldly and spiritual. May all beings know a liberated and creative life. <laughs>